Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 107th show. Today's guest is Amos Schwartzfarb, author of Levers. Amos, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm really, really excited to be here. 107th episode too, wow. (laughs) And we're excited to have you. And it was a fabulous book and a really good how-to book, which uh, everybody, especially uh, aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, should definitely be reading it. And ones who are looking to raise capital, this is a great book for them because it's going to help explain to potential investors how they're going to get there. So before we get started, uh, why don't you give us a little bit about your professional history? Sure. So I, I've been working in the, on the startup world um, for really the better part of, I think, 25, 26 years now. I started in Silicon Valley. Um, I was uh, early at a couple of companies there. The first one was a very early e-commerce company in the mid-90s. Then I was an early employee at a company called Hot Jobs, which later sold to Yahoo. I founded a company after that in Los Angeles called Work.com, which we merged with Business.com and then sold a few years later. Moved to Austin, Texas in 2008 and um, started a company there that we sold in the music space, joined another company that we sold a couple of years or about a year later. And then uh, shortly after that, joined Techstars uh, and have been there for the last seven years as the managing director. So now rather than uh, being on the operating side, uh, I invest in early stage companies at Techstars. Um, and I think one of the things unique unique about the role at Techstars is we get to sort of be this combination of operator and investor at the same time because of the way that the role is structured, which is kind of neat for, for operators. Yeah, I was going to ask you, do explain a little bit more. I mean, Techstars is famous, but maybe a lot of people don't know what exactly Techstars does, the industries they focus on and industries that don't entrust them. Yeah. Uh, so so Techstars, at its core, we are an early stage investor, seed stage investor. We we make the majority of our early stage investments in a in a unique way, which is that we run accelerators. We run right now fifty accelerators that, that um, operate, I think, in total about eighty or ninety times a year globally. So you know, literally, we've had accelerators in South Africa. We have them all over Europe. We have them in Asia, and then there's you know many here in the U.S. as well. And the way that it works is we find uh, you know. 12 companies, a cohort that we're interested in investing in. We bring them into the accelerator. They come to Austin or wherever for 90 days. And we really roll up our sleeves with them. And, and, and essentially, we try to help figure out how to put as much wind in their cells as possible. Um, and for the Austin accelerator in particular, we use the levers process as the foundation for the majority of the work that we do there. Do you also help these companies open up doors to strategic partners and help them with sales? Because it always seems to me investors uh, spend a lot of time giving them advice that they really don't need. Um, But the thing that they need the most is 
opening the doors for them. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it one step further. I think that, you know, we've invested as an organization in I think close to 5,000 companies now, pretty big portfolio. And there's really three common things that every company needs. And one of them is customer access to customers. One of them is access to capital. And the third is access to, um, to employees to hire. And so we, we do work on all three of those fronts. So the answer is yes. Um, there's a few different ways that we help people with access to, cu to customers. Um, the, the first and probably most obvious is we are a massive network, global network. And so what I usually tell companies when they're thinking about coming to Techstars is if we have the right message, there's virtually no one in the business world we can't get to. The key being we have to have the right message. Um, and then we, and then, so that's one thing. We also do some very uh, specific and pointed business that we call biz dev days where we're curating on a global level meetings with um, corporates and customers or, or rather our portfolio. And then the final thing that we do is um, um, we have corporate partners. Uh, so some of our accelerators are uh, specifically verticalized. So we have one that's called Farm to Fork, and there's a, you know a handful of partners there that are all in the food and ag space. We've got fintech accelerators that are in the fintech space, and so those are people that are you know they're looking for they're specifically looking for either companies to partner with for technologies that they they don't want to build in house or sometimes for acquisition. Uh, how how many locations are there for tech stars, and how long has it been around now? Yeah, we've been around since I think 2008, so a really long time. Um, Austin is one of the one of the oldest programs. We've been around since 2013, uh, and I think I, I'm losing track because we're growing pretty fast. I think there are roughly 50 locations currently, give, give wow, or take a around couple. the world. Around the world, yeah, yeah, and, and that's going to we're continuing to expand. Are they all individually owned and operated or are they centrally owned? They're centrally owned. They're centrally owned. We're, we're a big investment organization. How much do they typically invest in a year? Um, I don't know outside of the accelerator, but across the accelerator, you know, we're, if we're doing, I have to, I have to pull out my calculator to do the math, but if we're doing. Oh, just a five, ballpark. Yeah, I don't know, 20 million, 30 million in Excel in early stage companies. Wow. Oops, I hit play on my iPod by accident. There you go. <laughs> That's all right. Um, but we gave people enough of a sense about what Techstars does, the kind of things that they provide and why it makes it such a unique place and has had such a stellar track record. So fantastic. Uh, let's talk about your book. Why did you write this book? Um, there, there was a couple of things that sort of all came together at the same time. Uh, I co-wrote it. Um, originally, the idea was with me, uh, myself and Trevor Bame, who was working with me at the time. And this is the, the process here is a process that I've been using in businesses for long before I was at Techstars. And um, I had just released another book that had, had been doing pretty well. And Trevor, Trevor has authored a, a couple of books in the past as well. And, and he and I were talking one day and I said, uh, you know, do you think essentially the thing we were talking about is how do we 
take this work that we're doing with 10 entrepreneurs or 20 entrepreneurs a year? And is there a way to get it to more people? Because what we were seeing was real results in, in the work that we were doing. And so the two of us sort of got together and we said, yeah, we could do it, but how do we, you know, how do we do this in a way where we can be, um, get the greatest reach and make the biggest impact, which is why we asked our two other co-authors, Cody Sims and Troy Hennikoff to join us. And so what we feel like we cobbled together was, you know, the, the experts in the different fields. So we've each, we've each written the chapters that we're experts, we think we're experts in and between, you know, collectively between the four of us and the work that we do, um, you know, outside of the book, we felt like we had a pretty big reach. And I think it, you know, it's been true. We've got, you know, it's, it's gone pretty well. And um, so the, you know, the, really the reason getting to your question is we wanted to put this process in as many people, any people's hands as possible, because we felt like there wasn't really any great material out there that said, just go do this, right? There's lots of great theory, there's lots of great, great philosophies. There's phenomenal management books that are out there, but none of us were able to find something that said, if you do these things, you are setting a foundation to build, either build a successful company or quickly realize that the thing you want to do isn't going to work and you have to do something different. Uh, yeah, I've realized that with many ventures. that <laughs> <laughs> didn't take off for the, all the reasons you read about in the book. In the book, you asked the question, what is the difference between businesses that succeed and fail? So what did you learn from your own experience and from working with all these companies? Yeah, you know, there, there's probably several things, but I think collectively one of the biggest, and I think this is the thing that you're referencing in the book, but one of the biggest things that I've seen is companies that are not metrics driven um, have a, a much harder time finding long-term success if they can at all and more often will fail, right? So that means you could, you could, go and sell, you know, many millions of dollars in revenue. But if you're not actually metrics driven and understanding, not just, and, and, and I maybe should clarify what I mean by metrics driven, but not just understanding how did I do, but what happens if I, if I do this, what will happen next? And using metrics to drive the thought process, right? So the way I think about it is, you, you know, your, your gut instinct is sort of driving, you know, the, the direction, but the execution is driven by what the metrics are telling you you should and shouldn't do so that you can start to have this like crystal ball that becomes more and more clear over time. Um, and so, you know, get more specific with your answer. I think being a metrics driven business gives you a much, much better chance of being successful and maybe equally as important navigating the challenging times that are completely uh, that you cannot anticipate like COVID or things that are less drastic, but still you can't anticipate that they're going to happen. A new you know, a new um, competitor or, you know, something that changes in the market. You wrote that you have a data-driven model that gives you a clear path to success. Can you explain what that looks like and how it works? Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to explain it in the context of levers and, um, and a business, which is that the, the way that we've structured this process, I'll, I'll sort of jump to the end, is the process is meant to help you do all of the work you need to do to figure out how do I have a model, right? And like think financial model. How do I build a financial model that tells me the mechanics of my business, how I believe it's going to work 
So you can, you can imagine like one sheet of your financial model, like maybe there's like 20 sheets at the bottom that have lots of different things, but there's one sheet that are all the assumptions in your business, right? It might be 100, 150, 200 assumptions, right? Everything from how long the sales process is going to take to what all the different marketing channels are and what those conversion metrics might look like, what hiring is going to look like, what you know, customer churn is going to look like all of the things that you can imagine in your business. What do the mechanics look like? So there, all the assumptions are captured on a single sheet. And then you've got all these workbooks or pay other pages that essentially feed into an income statement and a balance sheet and a statement of cash flow. The, the intention being understanding or understanding what you don't understand about the mechanics of your business. And so when we talk about a data-driven model, that's literally what we're talking about. So I think a lot of times when people think financial model, they're thinking and reporting. Here's what we did last month. Here are the numbers. When we talk about financial modeling, we're saying, here's how we think the world is going to look like in the future. And it's an assumptive driven model. And as we move through the days, weeks, and months, those assumptions are either being proven right or wrong. And then we use that assumptions page to update the things that we've learned, which make the model more accurate over time. And so you can imagine if you're really diligent about that, it might take two or three years, but over time, your model becomes this really foggy crystal ball into a crystal ball that you can actually start to predict the future because you understand if I do X, I'm gonna get Y. And you understand what Y is because you've got a bunch of data that you've collected over several days, weeks, months, or years that suggests that if you keep doing this thing, assuming no outside forces, you know, uh, impact it, the same thing will happen. And if it doesn't, you know exactly where to look and you can help more quickly identify what is the outside force that changed something. And now we change our assumption and now you still have a, a working model with just a new assumption. Did you have any skepticism yourself of data before you really looked into this, started using it and seeing um, how it really did make it uh, make the business more predictable? Yeah, I, I think I'll say it differently than that, which is that I I don't have a, fi a finance background and I was an English major. I would say I was not data-driven in the early businesses that I was in. And I was fortunate to be around people who were. And I, I learned the value of it over time. So rather than say I had skepticism, I would say I didn't understand until I saw it, saw it in action working. And then once I saw it, it clicked for me and it doesn't make it easy. It's there still like in a new business, it's really hard to figure out like what's going to drive your business. You have theories, but you don't really know. But I, I, I would say rather than skepticism, more just like an, a lack of understanding, which is, which I really think is one of the biggest challenges with, with a lot of founders, you know, with tech stars, we talk about, you know, we have KPI meetings every week and the first half of every program, three quarters of the founders, they're, they're struggling really hard to say like, I don't know, what, I don't know what drives my business. You know, it, it, like they think about it as reporting of the past versus, um, uh, you know, trying to make a prediction on the future, which is totally fair. So, it, so I don't know, a long way to answer your question, but just to say not skepticism more just lack of understanding until I understood. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, I, I was a journalism major. I felt the same way once I started uh, understanding the numbers then I, I became really good at it and became um, kind of exactly the guide that you needed to get to the right place. Um, please tell us what are the five fundamental questions every business needs to ask and why is that important? The five fundamental, you're, I think you're talking about the, the actual framework. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, 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 I'll describe it like this. I think that there's actually a sneaky sixth too, which is in the appendix of the book. So I think it all starts with founders having a, a clear vision in their head of what they're, how they want to change the world. Now, it doesn't have to necessarily be articulated well in the beginning, right? Maybe you can't like spit it out to someone and have them totally get it. But in your mind, you should have like a picture of how you think the world you're trying to impact is going to change over time. So that's not one of the five things, but let's start there because without that, you're really wandering in the woods and you don't know where you're going. So the, the, way, that we, the way that we think about it, the way that we've structured the book is once you know that, the, the very first thing that you have to ask yourself is like, who, who am I trying to serve? What, what is my customer? You know, who is my customer? Like you have a theory of who that is, but how do you know you're right? And how, how do you know um, when, when you need to make minor or major alterations to your current beliefs that may not actually be a reality versus the thing you're feeling? So the first thing is like, you know, the question is like, what, you know, who is my customer? Who is really my customer? Once you have an idea of who that you think that is, the next one is like, what is, what is the business model? We call that revenue, your, your revenue formula, but what is your business model? And what are all the things you need to do to prove whether or not the business model you think will work for the business you're trying to build will actually work for the customer you're trying to serve? And if you think about all of the, the everything encompassed in those two things, like there's, there's a lot, you're, you're, brain starts to bend with the amount of to-do list that you can create. And so the third thing is, okay, what do you do now and next? Which is the third thing that we, you know, we say we ask, and it's the third part of the framework. What do you do now and next? How do you prioritize the work to be done in a way that will allow you to prove quickly whether or not you have an opportunity to be successful or not, and where you need to shift your thinking, because likely you will need to shift your thinking in some, in some places. The fourth thing, and now we're getting into the data, is like, how do you measure whether or not you're headed in the right direction? And, you know, there's, what did I do? The lagging indicators, but we believe for the purposes of this, more importantly, what, with what I'm doing, what does it unlock, what does it unlock for me next? Which is a, a leading indicator. And so we think about that as sort of the fourth, the fourth question. And the fifth question is that, like, what are the mechanics of my business, the financial model? Like, what, how does it actually all all the first four pieces, how do they come together? And this, it's, I, I joke, but like the sneaky thing that we unintentionally did is if you go through the first four steps very diligently, you can, you have 95% of the work you need to go build a great financial model, even if you don't have any Excel skills, because you can just Google all that stuff. So, so what's the process you should, you should use to collect data on whether your idea has merit? I mean, I think that's the, everybody has, thinks they have this great idea. And I know I have, I just launched one a year ago that has not taken off. What, what do they need to do? Yeah, it's, so I, I my belief is that um, it is a very hard, long and tedious process. And often harder, longer and more tedious than the founder will admit to themselves or may even be willing to, to do. I don't think there's any substitute to having hundreds, if not thousands of conversations with potential customers and early customers and customers all along the way. And I think, you know, there's this, you know, there's this notion for founders that are super optimistic 
oh, you know, I'm going to start this business. And in two years, I'll be doing a couple million in revenue. And in five, five years, I'll be doing, you know, hundred million in revenue and it's wildly profitable. And, you know, that doesn't, that's not the norm. The, the norm is it takes 10 or more years to make a business be successful. And it takes a lot of, of really, really long, hard, tedious work. A uh, question from the audience. Um, do you provide the founders with a template for building the model? We we do, yeah, we do, um, and it's a simple Google spreadsheet. Well, I guess it depends on how you're asking the question. So for the individual pieces of the of the process, yes. For the model itself, no. The model itself, I don't believe. I don't believe it is currently possible to provide a template for that. I think that every business is uniquely different for one thing. And so to provide a template assumes that we know something about your business that you don't know, which is unlikely. You probably know more than we could. I also think there's a tremendous amount of value starting from scratch for an early stage business because it forces you as the CEO to think really critically about literally every single aspect. And I hear a lot, by the way, yeah, I'm not, I don't know Excel well, or I'm not a financial guru. And my response is, yeah, so what? Neither, neither am I, but this is the work that it takes if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, in my opinion, right? Can you get someone to do it for you? Sure. You'll be one step removed from truly understanding the mechanics of your business. In your mind and experience, what's the greatest misconception about entrepreneurship? <laughs> Probably that it's easy. <laughs> it's a, it's a, and you know this too, like, yeah. I, I, there are so many days where I'm like, gosh, I wish I chose a different path 25 years ago. This is a hard, hard life. And there are way more hard, emotionally hard days, physically hard days than there are triumphs. And the triumphs come and they feel really good for a day or a week or a month. And then you just, you're, we have this affliction that we go back to, to inflicting pain on ourselves again. Yeah, we're saying I wish I did. <laughs> yeah, I wish I didn't have it in me. I, I wish I could go get a nine to five at a big company. <laughs> so that's I think the hardest the, 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 I think and I do I think this is this is something I think about a lot, Mark, and I've 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 talked about a lot, which is I do think one negative thing that has happened in the past decade is that there's been this um a combination of this like romanticism put around what it means to be an entrepreneur entrepreneur and there's been a change of definition of what it means to be an entrepreneur and like i don't think about being an entrepreneur as a career uh, like a career goal or a career path i think an entrepreneur is someone who says i i can't imagine doing anything else i just put on the world to do this thing and i'm going to figure out how to put food on my table doing the thing that i believe in i never wanted to be an entrepreneur i was the reluctant like some people aspire to that but that's not how I was wired. And my daughter said the same thing. She didn't want to be an entrepreneur after watching my life. And now she's got a global marketing practice and has her own uh, venture. <laughs> I, I don't know, it's a purse or something. I, my mom was always you know, saying to me, couldn't you get a regular job? I said, mom, I've, I've been trying to create regular jobs for yeah. the past 30 plus years. Yeah. Mark, every, every time I've sold the company, my parents say, so you're unemployed. What are you going to do for money? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know, mom. I got to go take a look. Maybe I got to go back to grad school, get that master's degree, get that job. At yeah. That doesn't exist. Yeah. But, anymore. Like, but like, 
Yeah. But like, like you, I, you know, I, every, at the beginning of every Techstars program, I give a founder story, which is basically like my, my life story, right. My business life story. And I started all with saying like, I'd never have once aspired in my life to be an entrepreneur. And I wish I wasn't, <laughs> this is really hard. So are you sure you want to be here? Yeah. And that's what I say all the time to uh, when I teach yeah. classes in entrepreneurship, it's, it's a tremendous amount of pain. The only thing it does for you is it makes you a super resilient person. You can almost handle anything. Yeah. So here's a question from the audience. Um, do you think there's a difference between passion and obsession? And if so, is one more important than the other to you? Oh, I love that question. It's from, I look, it's from James Oliver. James, what's up, dude? Um, so I do, and I, I, I can't take credit for this, and I'm not going to take credit for this. It's, I, um, Brad Feld and I were having a conversation once, and I used the word passion, and he corrected me, and I, and I believe his correction. So I do think there's a difference, and I think the difference is passion is an emotion, and obsession creates action. And so the way that I think about it is like I can be passionate about a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to go do anything or be able to stick to it or that my passion is going to, is going to be able to, to ride through the hard times. But when I'm obsessed, I can't stop doing the thing. And, um, you know, for me, the, the, like the, the, the way that I think about that on a daily basis is when I am investing in early stage companies and entrepreneurs, I'm trying myself to differentiate between passion and obsession. Like, is this person going to stop at virtually nothing to be successful? Right. Um, when you're researching and everyone is telling you your idea is brilliant, how do you know if it's bullshit? Um, I th like I think the, the the to use a like an overused cliche, the rubber meets the road on are people willing to pay for it and are they willing to pay for it long term? And so like, I hear a lot of ideas that sound brilliant, like there's lots of great ideas out there, but how they're, you know, one, how they're executed and two, just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good. So I, I mean, the way that I differentiate, you know, some of it is just, you know, my gut feeling, which is not always right, but really I don't think for, for a founder, I don't think there's any way to truly know until you have people that are willing to pay for your thing that they tell you they can't live without it. And if you took it away, they would be very, very sad. And maybe they'd have to like figure out an alternative. And, and timing fa factors a lot into whether your idea takes off at a particular point in history, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I was just talking to a friend of mine earlier today who uh, is, is launching a business model that makes complete sense. And I know someone who tried something really similar 10 years ago and the timing just wasn't right for it. Um, and I think timing plays a key, key factor. And, you know, I think we, we, it's, it's virtually impossible to time the market, but there's a lot of great ideas that just happened, you know, too soon and never made it off the ground. I've had that. I have a failed business that was just, it was probably a decade too soon. Um, and I think it'll happen sometime. It just won't be us that did it. Yeah. I've had a few of those. I created the yeah. first insurance product to insure small business bank accounts against cyber theft. And two big insurance companies thought, man, this is going to make us a lot of money. And we were featured in every business magazine on TV, and we only sold 55 policies, of which I bought five of them. And 
People just weren't, you know, they said, I don't think anybody's going to hack my business bank account and steal my money. And now it's part of every insurance policy. But I was, like you said, a decade too early for this. Another question from the audience. How often do you update the assumptions in your model? And how do you know that it's working and helping? Yeah, awesome. That's I love that question. It is such a great question. So the the answer depends a little bit on the on the cadence of your business. So if you're like in a really high paced consumer facing business or a really high transactional B two B business, uh, you'll likely be updating the assumptions more frequently. But I would say at bare minimum sit down at the end of every month or the, or the, you know, the beginning of the next month and reconcile the previous month, like every single assumption so that your model literally changes. And so what I recommend doing, and we talk about this in the book is go take a snapshot of, of like, like say you're doing it on the 1st of April for March, take a snapshot of exactly where you are, where the assumptions look like and what the model looks like, then go in and update the assumptions for everything going forward, right? So you're locking in the past because the past is the past. You're locking it in, and then your the assumptions will completely change your model, even if they're just you know tiny assumptions for all of the future. And if you're doing that every month over time, it goes from you know I, I use the analogy of the crystal ball, and this is Troy's analogy, but I love it. Right, you go from this really hazy idea of what the future might look like, and as the assumptions are getting updated, what you're really doing is you're collecting more and more data to say I understand what repeatability looks like. And at some point, you literally understand that if I do X, I will always get Y, unless there's a, an outside change to the market that I can't predict. But as long as everything that I can predict stays the same, I know what's going to happen. That could take weeks. I mean, I'm sorry. It could take months. It will more likely take years. Okay. So we have another question here from the audience. And it is, have you worked with a founder or groups of founders in the pre-formation stage before there's a venture entity or even a pre-idea? Um, I have not worked with anyone before there was an idea. And that's, that's I, I won't say that's not a thing that some of my peers have done before, because I think there are some. I would say that there's two reasons that that doesn't work for me. Um, like to me, there, there has to be an idea for me to get inspired. And so like, I'm not going to be the one that's going to like be helpful in creating an idea. Um, and I, and I also think like, if there's not an idea, then like, it's it sort of like feeds into honestly something else, which is, do you want to be an entrepreneur because you want to be an entrepreneur or do you want to be an entrepreneur because you're obsessed with the problem? And so for me, going back to the obsession question, like if you're not already obsessed with a thing, it's going to be hard for me to be obsessed with you. That's me. That's not all my peers. Um, there was a second part to that question. Oh, and so, and I have, I absolutely have worked with many companies who are um, pre-product. I had, I think, two in this last latest program that were pre-product. That's totally fine. The entrepreneurs are obsessed. They were, you know, they were entrepreneurs that had track records that I believed in, and I, you know, my belief in the founders were there, and their my belief in their obsession was there, and so it made it easy for me to say, yeah, we'll figure this out if there's a thing to figure out. How often do you, and it's another question from the audience, how often do you see founders keeping 50% plus control of their company? How often do you see the financial partners taking control? Um, I just had, I was just having this conversation with a founder yesterday. Um, 
So there's a couple of things here. One is if control is the thing you're, you're really asking about, control can be covered in other ways, even if you are not a majority shareholder in your documents. Now you need a bunch of things in place and I'll sort of get to that in a second, need a bunch of things in place in order to be able to have that kind of leverage. But control is different, you put control of the business is different than ownership. So we can separate those two things out. Sometimes they are the same thing, but often they are not. With ownership percentage, um, you know, I, if you're building a company that's raising three, four, five, six, seven venture rounds and going public, like the likelihood is you're going to probably own 10% or less of your company by the time you go public. That's kind of standard. Um, there are ways to not do that. I actually believe, and all of the authors of Levers believe, that by going through this process, you're actually putting yourself in the best position to hold on to as much of ownership of your company for as long as possible. Not because there's any magic in what we do, but because it gives you a really clear understanding of what you need to do to be successful, which gives you more leverage or levers to do things like hold off on raising money because you can run a capital efficient business for longer. Maybe you can run a profitable business. Maybe when you go raise around, you're, you're raising around with such great leverage that you can, you can control raising more money at a, a, at a higher valuation and maintain more control through that process. So it, it is one of the reasons why we think this process can be so powerful. Um, so I'm diverging from your question a little bit, but I, you know, I think again, like the, if it's control or ownership, those are two different, two different things. It's all about the leverage at the end of the day, because um, the more people you have wanting to get in, the more you hold on to, and the higher the price. That's sure. right. Right, so and so another, the more the more leverage, the more of those levers that you understand how to pull, the more leverage you have with your investors. So here's a question from the audience. There are so many success stories of entrepreneurs who were told no hundreds, if not thousands of times, but they stuck with it and it resulted in success. Conversely, there are even more stories of entrepreneurs who kept the faith, but never actualized the success they envisioned. Is there a point when an entrepreneur should just throw in the towel? If so, what's the inflection point in your opinion or an experience? There, there definitely is a point where it's time to say, this isn't going to happen. How to define that is unique to the person. Um, and well, it's partially unique to the person and their individual, uh, their individual situation. And it's partially dependent on how deeply you truly understand the business and the market you're trying to build. So, so on the, the first part of that, like, like if, if, if you're going to put yourself in extreme debt and you don't really understand what the business is, like there's some point where you have to ask yourself whether or not, like it's more than just your hope that is going to drive you to success, which, which parlays into why we believe a process like levers or forget the four, first four parts, even for a second, just having a financial model that you're using to figure things out becomes so important because if you can understand what is working and what isn't and the things you need to focus on, it will help you better figure out like, okay, I just need to do these three things and I think I'm going to be okay. That should take me six months. I'm willing to take that risk versus I have no idea. I'm just going to keep going until I'm living on the street. And then the second part of the question is, or and my answer is understanding your business well enough, right? It goes back to the financial model and how you're leveraging that to, to try to get to 
a degree of confidence in repeatability in the future, how do you how do you use a model to help you not just say, I hope this is right, but here are the reasons why I believe there is an opportunity here. Yeah, I had a, a friend of mine who started a company that looked like it was really going to take off, but he didn't. And he stayed with it for 15 years. And the, I asked him once, why are you staying with this thing so long? Because it's been like basically the walking dead. And he goes, because my investors put money in and I didn't want to let them down. So what at what point, you know, he has sacrificed essentially like probably a decade more than he should have. At what point do you even tell your investors, listen, I've done everything I could to make this a success? Or do you just go down, you know, go out on your shield? Gosh. I hate to keep bringing it back to the same thing, but like I kind of put this a little bit on those investors also, and then maybe they were all silent, silent investors, right? It's like a, a situation where like he might have had some guilt, and the investors were like, "Yeah, we wrote this off a long time ago." Having that open communication with your investors, like from day one, and being really transparent with one another in both directions, I think is critical. Like you may want to keep going, and they may have lost faith on you, and you should still keep going if you still believe and have the the, the metrics in place to support what you're doing. Um, but being able to have that conversation with them versus just hanging on to the guilt of whether or not you believe it will work or not. But I think, you know, maybe to answer your question more specifically, I don't think that, that like, if that was his reason, my belief is he should have stopped and at least had a conversation with every single investor multiple times to say, I'm not seeing a path forward other than this, what we're doing right now and sustaining, do you, like, what do you think, right? And most investors, not all, but most investors, especially if they're investing a lot, they understand that, it, that what they're investing in has a low probability for a return. I know that sounds like, a, like an awful thing to say as an investor, but that's the reality. Most businesses don't work, no matter whether they're in business for a year or 15 years. Um, I'm forgetting her name now, and I should remember this, but the woman who essentially um, perpetrated a, a, a giant fraud in Silicon Valley with her healthcare company, how should she have handled yeah. that differently if she knew that the product wasn't working? You know, because I kind of feel that there are, some, there are entrepreneurs who are afraid to tell the investors this isn't working. What do you yeah, Well, I think... I think in her case, yeah, in her case, I think we might be dealing also with with um, someone that I, I I don't know. I don't. I, I'm forgetting her name now too. I don't. Know, Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. yeah uh, yes. I, I don't know her. I don't know who she is. But like my outside, you know, Monday morning quarterback belief is she probably um, has other emotional issues. You know, either narcissistic or insecurity or something that are so huge that she didn't have the ability to see what was really happening oh, well, or I to guess, come to truth with herself about it. Yeah. Amos, I guess what I'm asking is entrepreneurs, when they see the business isn't going right, but they're afraid of telling their investors because they're afraid the investors will either pull the plug on them or pull the plug on the business or both. What do you tell those entrepreneurs? Yeah, so I would say I'm I'm more proactive with that with with what I tell the the founders I work with. I believe in 
in extreme transparency and honesty from day one, first of all, and constant clear communication with your investors. And so the thing that I really encourage every founder to do, and the best companies in my portfolio do this for literally multiple years, is to send a weekly update every single Friday or Monday. Here's what's happened last week, good, bad, and ugly. Here's what we plan to do next week that's positive, and here's what we're going to do to solve the problems. So there are never any surprises. The companies who do that, when they start running into problem, they have no problem fundraising from their existing investors, usually because the investors, there's no surprises, there's complete transparency, there's a belief in the founder because they see how transparent the founder is and how they're their problem solving. Um, and so while I, 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 on one hand, can understand the fear, um, instead of running away because of that fear, my suggestion is understand where your fear is coming from and cut it off at the head by being really transparent about what's happening. So you can ask for help because your fear is just likely going to get worse, not better, which makes it harder to ask for help. I agree a hundred percent about the reports. I did that in every venture, never was ever asked to leave because everybody felt the transparency. They all felt like we were in together. They sent ideas. We tried some of their ideas. And as long as you keep trying the investor's ideas, then they feel like, why do I need to make a change? I mean, it's not like it's his fault. This thing isn't working out. All of us collectively are responsible <coughs> for the success or failure of the, of the venture. Yeah, and so, you're making it a collaborative effort, which, which, which a lot of investors, they want that, even if it's just a little bit of collaboration. They want to be a part of it. That's why they've invested. Yeah, I've never been asked to leave any venture uh, after doing that because it just didn't make sense to the investors uh, or board to even make a change. Um, all right, here's another question from the audience. Are there any industries, models that excite you most, which you are seeing uh, come through uh, tech stars in Austin? Could be something that you saw a decade ago resurfacing, could be completely new. So what's um, hot? Yeah, so... So I'm going to say no, and I'll tell you why, and then I'll give you an answer anyway. But the answer is the answer is no, and the the reason the answer is no is because I've based my entire investment thesis around a belief that if I can find CEOs that are that I believe in, that I believe are um, great people that can build meaningful companies and attract great talent around them and they're obsessed with the market that they're in, that they will build a successful business. They have the best opportunity to build a successful business. And so the thing that I get excited about are the, the, the people aspects. And, I've, and there's some people on here that know me and they know I've said this to them before. A lot of times when I'm, when I'm looking at companies for the next investment set, I might not know what the company does until like the third, fourth, or fifth time I've met them. Even if they've told me, it's not the thing I'm listening to. I'm trying to get conviction around the people. That's me. That is not all of my peers. I have peers that are very, very focused on specific areas and getting excited. So, so the answer is no. That being said, I do think um, the, the cannabis space is very interesting right now um, because, it has, because it's been illegal for so long. And, the, and there's so many people that still don't want to touch it. And I think there's, there's a unique um, renaissance type opportunity to build things from the ground up, like the picks and the shovels is the thing about that industry that, industry that is really interesting to me. 
Um, at some point that's going to go away. And I think at some point soon that's going to go away because uh, more mainstream businesses are going to get more comfortable servicing that space, banks being one of them. But until then, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in that space because so many people are afraid to touch it. And I don't believe it's going anywhere. Um, you wrote about narrowing down the who so narrow and specific that your chance of a sale will be 100%. How do you make that happen? Please walk us through an example you gave about the time you were at business.com. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I am not letting myself or any founder listening off the hook, but I want to be really clear, striving to understand, uh, to get a yes 100% of the time. So what you're, I'll give you an example, but what you should be doing is you're saying, if someone lines up to this exact profile, they're going to say yes. And if they don't say yes, figure out which attribute is missing or added so that you have a deeper understanding of your, of your customer set. That being said, over very quickly over time, it's virtually impossible to actually achieve a hundred percent early on, especially because you don't really know what 100% looks like. And you might get some yeses along the way that are they don't have 100% of the attribute list, which changes things, or there might be a different attribute list. And you might get no's, which teach you that the attribute list you thought you had is not accurate. Uh, at business.com, and I'll, I'll give a little more context here for those listening and haven't read the book. When, when work.com got acquired by business.com, I took over sales. At that time, and I, I don't, the numbers are a little hazy to me, but I think like we were doing roughly 7 million in revenue and we had been doing about 7 million in revenue. They had been doing about 7 million in revenue for, for a few years. So there wasn't any growth. It was, so there was meaningful revenue. It wasn't, you know, it was good, but there was a really, really leaky bucket. So the, so what had happened was they'd done a great job of hiring incredible salespeople, but they didn't really understand who their customers should be or what their customer was buying or why they cared about it. And so the salespeople were good at getting people to pay to sign up. And as soon as that customer realized there wasn't the right value for them, they would go away. And so we had this, you know, this flat line because we had as many people going out the bottom as were coming in the top. And at business.com, that was like the, basically the very first thing that I had to solve that I solved with um, Kevin, Kevin Gaither, who's gone on to lots of great successes elsewhere which is we asked ourselves those three questions, like who, who is our customer really? What are they really buying from us? And why are they, why are they buying what they're buying from us? And what we learned, it's, I'll probably forget a lot of the attributes, but essentially, so business.com was selling search advertising similar to the search that you buy in Google today. We were doing it in the early days of Google search. So this is going back into the early 2000s. And what, you know, there was a lot of things that we learned, but like the, probably the, the, the four primary things that made a diff the difference between us having a leaky bucket and not. Let me describe leaky bucket. When I joined, I think we had 25 or 30% churn rate on a monthly basis. And inside of a year, we got that down to less than 1% because we figured this out. Wow. Um, That's huge. Yeah, huge, huge. That alone, right? At flat right. sales, that alone revenue spikes, right? right? Skyrocket. We went from 7 million to 80 million in three in a, um, 18 months, in, in three halves because of that. Right, because of that, and also increased sales. So the the primary things that we figured out was um, one, are the way that business.com was structured. There was uh, there was actually a point of diminishing returns on any given search term that we were selling. So 
so our salespeople were smart. They they're like, well, this is a this is a search term that um, that I can go and make a lot of money from. But what they were doing is they were displacing somebody else versus looking for more opportunity. So one of the first things we did was we said, okay, there is a point of diminishing returns. We don't sell into categories or or search terms once it hits a certain level of um, of uh, a threshold, both on number of advertisers and price. And so it created our inventory differently than how we basically we were selling everywhere versus like saying, what is our inventory? That was the first thing. So that first thing parlayed into the second thing. Now that we knew where our inventory was, it made it really clear who we should and shouldn't be selling to from a, um, a type of business from an industry perspective. But that wasn't enough because once we had that, there were a couple of other things we had to figure out. And these are the two big things that, that were huge learnings for me. And this is really, business.com is really where I went from like not being metrics driven to being metrics driven because I watched it in real time. I learned how to do it and I watched it work. The next thing was, um, if the business itself was not already buying search on Google or on Yahoo or on Microsoft or somewhere else, we were going. We had a much bigger hurdle of convincing them that they should do something they've never done before. It doesn't mean we couldn't do it, but the sales cycles were much, much longer, and the servicing cost to us was much, much higher. So, if they had, even if they were only buying from one other place, it lowered our barriers on the sales process and also on the servicing costs. So that was the, the, the next thing. The final piece, and, and this was one that took, took us a little while to figure out when we figured this out, this was really one of the linchpins was even if everything else was aligned, if the person who was the actual buyer, and this is when I talk about the why in, in W3, this is the second why. If the person wasn't specifically incentivized to buy from us, even if they said yes, the likelihood of them being successful was low and they were more likely to say no, even if all the other things were aligned because we were creating more work for them, even though we were creating more revenue for the company. So if there wasn't a direct incentive for them, we were only creating work for them, right? If they weren't going to get a raise or a bonus or a promotion, we were only creating work for them. So why would they say yes? Very few people will operate that way. And so oftentimes those people, we would say, here's what it is. But you're you're actually probably not a good customer for us right now, and then they'd have to they'd have to tell us why they that they were, in which case they sold themselves into the product. So those are the big the big four pieces that that we figured out at business.com. And you can imagine if you're thinking about this for your own business, like it's not going to be the same for your business. Some of the some of the high level philosophies will be the same, but the, but the execution of that will be very 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 different. Uh, you have a and I'm paraphrasing this a quote, and it goes along with what you just talked about a quote from a CEO uh, that says, there's a difference between what you are selling and what the customer is buying. Can you explain that? Yes, um, I will. And it, uh, another way to say that is, and I really like to say this, and I think it drives the point home. When you're an early stage founder, especially, nobody cares what you do. They care what you do for them. So if you think about that in the form of that, in, in, in the question you just asked me, the difference is, what do you do for me? The example that I use, because I think people will understand this, this example is, if you're, if you're a founder and you're like, okay, we need to go you know, figure out how to drive sales. We need to go buy sales or buy leads or buy customers somewhere. You don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go buy search from Google. 
search is the platform. You say, I'm going to go to Google because I think I'm going to buy customers or I'm going to buy leads that I can convert to customers. So the difference there is Google doesn't sell you search. They sell you customers. They sell you leads. They sell you research. Um, please explain the concept of the revenue formula versus the sales formula. And uh, please use the example of SkillPro that you illustrate uh, in your book. Uh, yeah, the SkillPop one. I'll do my best to remember the SkillPop, the, the whole the whole story, because it was a really neat story. Um, so like a sales, a sales formula or sales process is specific to sales. A revenue formula is really another way to say, what is your business model? And the reason we state it as revenue formula is because the, the, the image that we want, not just the image, the thing we want you to do is to come up with what do you think the basic math equation is that runs your business on a day-to-day. -day. When you're at scale, if you're right, that basic math equation becomes the executive dashboard. Where this becomes really important is not like if you imagine like literally lines across the top of the page with a math formula, everything that comes underneath that is important. We call them drivers and subdrivers. So what are the things, ultimately, what are the levers? What are the things that need to be built researched, done, proven, so that you understand repeatability at a finite level, so that you understand repeatability at the math equation level. And when we say math equation, like literally when your business is at scale, you can plug in the real numbers of your business and you spit out the real revenue of your business. The skill pop example is um, when, they, when they went through Techstars with us, they came in having a belief, let me, see, let me make sure I get this, this right. They had a belief that uh, in their revenue formula, that the more, um, the more classes they had, the more revenue that they would drive and that they just had to drive that through marketing. And the, the epiphany for them, and it's a, it was an epiphany for them and not necessarily for a similar business in the same space, but the epiphany for them was the way that their model worked that wasn't the drive, the main driver of revenue. And they flipped the model. And what they learned was um, the number of facilitators, the people teaching the classes, was actually a much better indicator and driver of future revenue because the number of great facilitators, one, it also equated to the number of classes. It also equated, uh, equated to that facilitator's ability to drive marketing for themselves because they were using this as an income source. So they wanted to do more classes and drive more people. So at this point, skill pop becomes a support function for them versus then the driving function of the whole thing. And so for that business, it made sense to flip it. Similar business might work completely opposite based on how they want to prove out the model. And there's not a right or wrong here, by the way, there's like, how do I figure out how to actualize opera and operationalize the thing that I believe works the best. Uh, question from the audience. How does a non-tech company compete for investor attention against the techs with high, sky-high growth metrics? So a little bit of this has to go with what your, what your goals are, what your belief of the market potential is, and what investors' belief of your market potential is. So I'll, I'll start here. We'll, let's separate venture capital firms out from individual investors. Venture capital firms, they have their job is not to invest in you. Their job is to take money from their investors and return more money than they took. And so, and because statistically more businesses are not successful than are, they need to be investing in companies 
that they believe can return, any single company can return a tremendous multiple on the investment that they're making because they know that some of them won't. And so th th there has to be a difference made up. So if you, there, you need to ask yourself, is your company really venture investable? So if you go to a fund that's a $100 million, a $500 million, a billion dollar fund, a $100 million fund means that they need to return $100 million to their investors plus more. $100 million is a failure. $200 million is a failure. They need to be returning $300 million to their investors. So if you don't believe that you can build a $300 million business, you are not a good, you're not going to be a good candidate for them. So you have to believe that that market is there. If you believe that market is there and you can prove that through data, then that's how you compete with them. That's different than some individual investors. There are some individual investors and there's a lot of them out there that look at investing differently. Right? And I'll use myself as an example. There's like the, the, there's the side of me that does venture investing, but then there's other things that I do that I don't expect the same kind of multiples and I invest differently there. So there are investors out there that say like, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't mind investing in a, you know, a bar or a restaurant or a pet care facility. I, I'm not expecting to get you know, um, $10 million for my $10,000 investment. I'll be happy to get my $10,000 back or $20,000 and I'll be a part of something cool. And then there's other think, kinds of investors too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, and I don't think any investor has a clue whether something is going to be that Facebook or, you know, any of these, you know, zoom or anything like that. Nobody has a clue if that's going to happen. And, and often investors will tell you, I never expected that company to be that big where I expected these other two companies to be huge home runs and they turned out to be nothing. So it's hard to project. There, there was a mention in the book about how to handle differences in strategic focus and that the leader asking the question of whether they are, uh, are forcing a consensus. First, what is your advice when everyone can't agree to the strategic focus of the business and how important is it to have consensus? I, I think I'll do my best to answer, but I think it's a pretty new, like in, in reality, it's a pretty nuanced answer. I think that first of all, there has to be a really clear vision that everyone understands. And that vision needs to be set by the CEO. And if there's not consensus around that vision, my belief is the CEO makes the call there. Like it is the CEO's, you know, the CEO has only a couple of jobs and one of them is to set the vision of the company, period. And so if there's not consensus on the vision, can if, if there's something that helps the CEO change their vision, that's fine. But if not, that's what it is. And you're either on board with that vision or you should leave because you'll always be frustrated. Full stop. Here's the last question. What is the one or two big mistakes entrepreneurs make that prevent them from succeeding? Yeah. Um, well, what, one that really is a catch-all for a couple is um, belief that they are further along than they are. And I see it all the time where you start to grow and scale long before you have any proof that you understand what repeatability is. And in my belief, repeatability needs to come first and it takes a long time to figure that out. And if you try, try to grow and scale before you get there and hope you're gonna figure it out, I've seen it, I've seen way more companies, way more companies crash and burn. In fact, I've never seen, I don't know that I've ever seen a company 
be successful. They, they may not go out of business, but they may have to like completely recapitalize and wipe everything out and have huge layoffs before they figure it out. So the biggest mistake truly is like growing and scaling long before you're ready because you're impatient. Yeah, I think that might've been um, Peloton, right? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, think they also, they, they also had a, fa- a, a false hope of what the world might look like post COVID or that there would be a post COVID. Right. Right. Uh, well, Amos, thank you so much. The book is terrific. I hope everybody gets the book. I hope you'll write another book because uh, you're very good at explaining these complex issues and having you. you come back again, for sure. Be careful on your you. dark bike while you're riding in the Mojave Desert. I, I will. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. Really, this has been a lot of fun and I, I've just enjoyed the whole day. Well, we're going to stay in contact. Have a great, wonderful weekend, everybody. We'll see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.